theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Amy. Hi, Joy. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just really excited about today. And you know what? When I think back, we didn't set out to do all these podcasts on diversity, you know? Uh, you know, we were going to talk about all these different trends in education, but so far, most of them have been about diversity. However, I think in this current climate, with all the racial unrest, it seems very appropriate, don't you think? I, I do, and I like to hear the perspectives from so many different people and what their experiences are in education at, at whatever level that might be, whether it's K-12, teacher in the classroom, administrator, administrator preparation, all of these perspectives really help us build that whole picture. It does. And, and you know, based on the decision that was made yesterday, and that'll kind of give a time frame to the podcast on Breonna Taylor, you know, people have different views about how that decision should have been made. I just wanted to start off by giving homage to all who have suffered due to acts of racism and inequality. You know, our entire time during this COVID period, we've had the opportunity to look at that and have a different view. You know, people of all color have had to, to face what it means for other people and through hearing stories. So it's, it's very real. You know, one of the things I think of is the definition of at risk. And I grew up being at risk by definition. And I was thinking that I'm so glad that no one ever told me that I was at risk. <laughs> but can you imagine? And we throw these terms out. We put people in categories based on advantages and disadvantages. And I'm just happy that no one ever told me that I was at risk. Because had I known I was at risk, I probably wouldn't have gone to college and I wouldn't have gotten graduate school. And I wouldn't have gotten a PhD. You know, so it saddens me when we are talking about these situations where people can't get to the next level because they've been ostracized and that door is closed. And, you know, as a person who worked in predominantly white institutions my entire career, you know, I can relate to how that feels. So I am, I'm just excited. We're going to have Timothy Harrington as our next guest. And he's going to talk about the opposite. He's going to talk about being white and black faces. So we don't get to hear a lot about that. So I am excited to hear about his paper. Well, and his paper even talks about how little research has been done in that uh, particular area. There is research about being black and white spaces, but he's going to tell us more about being white in black spaces. So it will be interesting, again, with all the different perspectives we're able to bring together uh, on this show and learn from, I'm just glad that there are listeners who can learn right along with us. I am uh, really pleased to introduce our guest, Dr. Tim Harrington. Uh, he was born in Northeast Ohio and one of six children. So I'll be interested to see how uh, your experiences have shaped the way you are viewing education now. Uh, he has two children of his own and rece he received his bachelor's in secondary mathematics education and went on to earn a master's in curriculum and instruction and PhD in urban education from uh, Cleveland State University. 
and has worked previously for 17 years in higher education in the state of Illinois at a, a different institution and has been at Governor State University as division chair of education for the past four years, I believe. And welcome, Dr. Harrington, Thank as uh, we have a conversation in education with you today. I appreciate uh, being uh, invited. So we're really excited that you're here, Tim. So Tim, mm -hmm. you know, I just want to begin and I'm going to try not to talk so much because this topic was just very exciting and you're, I really enjoyed reading your article. So I just kind of want to begin with this powerful image that you sent, Amy and I. And if you can imagine, you know, we'll, we'll use our virtual eyes here. You shared this image of these three boys. They were of different heights and they were trying to see over the fence to see a baseball game. And the, the first photo shows all three boys, again, different heights, using the same size crate. And while this crate was high enough for the tallest boy, it wasn't for the shortest boy. You know, so you get this image of just because things are equal, they're not fair. So, and I always give this analogy, you know, of two boys shoveling, you have, and we know that in Chicago, that things with snow are not always equal, right? If you live on the west side, not like living on the east side, and you're going to pay these boys $10 to shovel the snow, and they both have the same shovel. So they have their equal equipment, right? And can you imagine the snow? So the west side kid gets like two, three inches and the east side kid gets like 10, 12 inches, you know? And so we see that when we have these equal resources, it doesn't mean equity. And so, because they're coming from different advantages or disadvantages. And when I read your article, being white and black spaces, teaching and learning at a predominantly black institution, uh, this was really good. And while the article was steeped in research, it also had that element of a must read story, you know? So yeah. that was really good. So before I go too far into talking about the article, I do want you to discuss some of the acronyms that we may talk about so that uh, our listeners don't get confused. You know, in higher ed, we like to use education, we like to use a lot of acronyms. So before you get started, if you could please talk about the acronyms for like PWI, PHI, PBI, and then we have two CRTs, CRT and a CRT. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Joy, and I, uh, I appreciate that story about the fence is uh, um, not unique or new, but it does highlight really um, importantly how equity and equal aren't always equal. And uh, so I equate also that fence story um, to the constructivist methodology that, that you, have to, you have to allow somebody to construct meaning, uh, but they have to construct it based on their own reality. And uh, so you can't uh, just let uh, um, uh, somebody go and, and, and stand on the box. You have to help them build the box and they have to understand what the box is before they can, you know, get the use of the box, right? So uh, I like that analogy. Um, some of the, some of the um, analogy or some of the uh, acronyms that you might hear today, uh, PBI uh, is a predominantly black institution. Uh, a PWI would be a predominantly white institution. Uh, a PHI would be a predominantly Hispanic institution. An HBCU is a historically black college or university. Um, uh, and I may be forgetting some, but yeah, the, CRT. Some well. yeah, the CRT, the culturally responsive teaching. And then we had what was it critical racial? What was that? Critical, uh, critical race theory, CRT, yeah. critical yeah, race that was theory, very, very interesting, which was developed by um, some lawyers in the 80s because they saw inequity in the justice system. And so um, that's where uh, critical race theory and, and uh, uh, came from. Um, so uh, those are some of the, the acronyms. Uh, and I think that the, uh, the article itself does uh, kind of go back and forth a little bit between theory and, 
and experience, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a, it's, it's talking about my experience being a, a white professor at a, at a predominantly black institution. And I, uh, and, and how that came about and, uh, and then some of the, um, some of the realizations, uh, some of the evolution that I had to have and thought, um, some of the realities that I had to come to uh, that I just was not aware of. Um, you know, it wasn't that I was intentionally trying to um, not consider other people. Uh, it's that I didn't have the tools to consider other people because I had never talked about those tools. And, uh, and it was when I was thrust into that role that I had to look back on my own life historically and, and come to an understanding of where I fell as it, as it uh, relates to whiteness and, and uh, a privilege and, uh, and, and then teaching at a, a predominantly black institution. You know, discuss some of those experiences. I know that uh, we've had conversations in the past just with upbringing and how that influences uh, the way we teach and the way we learn. Tell us more about that experiences and those, uh, those spaces, uh, particularly uh, related to your classroom audience. Let's start at the classroom level and any classroom practices you thought would maybe work and then they ended up flopping. Like, and you why know, we, was that? Yeah, we get, we, I mean, we can certainly talk about uh, culturally responsive pedagogy. Um, but, but an even bigger frame to look at is how I viewed my students, not teaching them how I viewed them walking into the classroom. So I'll give you an example. I had a, um, a, I taught um, primarily a methods course. I taught teachers how to teach mathematics, elementary teachers how to teach mathematics. And I had this one student uh, she uh, first, this is my first class that I was teaching uh, for the institution. It was a four hour class, one, one night a week. And I had set it up so that we would work for a couple hours, take a break, and then work for a couple hours. And uh, this one student came uh, and the first half of class was doing some really great work. And then after break, disappeared. And uh, my, you know, that happens. And uh, the next week she was back and and she was very engaged in the first half of class, really had a lot of great ideas. And uh, at break, after break, disappeared. And, and so then, she, and she was a really strong student. So the next week I caught her before class and I said, listen, not for nothing, but if you don't stay for the entire class, there's no way you can pass the class because there's so many things that we do inside of class that, that will um, impact what you're doing outside of class, that if you're not there, you're not gonna pass. And she just kind of gave, bobbed her head. And, 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 it, and then it occurred to me, and it had never occurred to me before, but it occurred to me at that moment to ask her, well, what's going on? <laughs> like, I didn't think to ask, you know, what, why she was leaving. So I did, and, and she said to me, um, well, the, the honest story is, is that I live in a very tough neighborhood and I take the bus home. And if I leave at break, I can get home while it's still light out. And I don't have to walk from the bus stop to my house in the dark. And I was blown away. I had no concept of that. That, that was not a reality of mine. And so I, uh, I didn't know what to do. In that moment, you know, you, you could go a couple of ways, I guess, but the way mine went was I reached out to her and I said, how about I take you home? It's on my way when I leave the university, I can drop you off in your neighborhood and I can just continue on and, it, and, and we can just make, no one needs to know and, and I can just do that for you. And she said, okay, well, let me, I'll tell you next week. And uh, I said, okay. And she, she came back the next week and she said, okay, we can do that. And, and I said, uh, can I ask why did it take a week for you to decide? And uh, she said, you know, I had to go back to my neighborhood and talk to the gang leader and make sure that you were going to be okay leaving my neighborhood at night. And he said that you would be, you would be protected. Wow. And, so, 
And so she gave a safe passage for you. Yeah. And we talk about cities that have safe passages to school for young children to get to their school because of maybe gang activity or drug activity. And, and it's something that you don't have to think about unless you're in it and you have to experience it. You know, I had a reverse, reverse experiences being black and white spaces all through my college career, working as a principal in Arizona and throughout my 25 years in higher education, that's been my experience. And, but as you mentioned in your article, you know, that's, that's very common. And in fact, you pointed out, there's lots of research that talks about being black and white spaces. Uh, so that was very interesting. And for me, it, it wasn't a conscious decision. It just happened. So I wonder for you, was this a conscious decision where you decided, oh, I'm going to work at a PBI. Yeah. And then also I want you to discuss that experience and how you feel that you acclimated and did you even know that when you had acclimated? Yeah, uh, those are those are all great questions. Um, you would think I was getting a PhD in urban education. Um, uh, uh, you would think that I, I had some goal to teach at an urban institution not to say that all urban institutions are PBIs and not uh, all PBIs are urban institutions. I'm not trying to say that. Um, uh, but I, I didn't, hadn't thought that far ahead. I was just, you know, kind of taking the next step in my evolution of my education. And when I graduated, I applied for any job that was open. Um, in the year that I uh, graduated, I found a total, grand total of three math educator jobs in the United States. And I applied for all three. One happened to be at a PBI. I didn't know that it was a PBI. I didn't, I, I don't, I, I, I just, I'm gonna claim ignorance. I, I, I didn't do the research. I didn't, I wasn't as informed as I should have been. And, it, and I went and I enjoyed the interview and, I, and, and uh, they made me an offer and I accepted. All still not, realizing that it was a PBI. Um, it wasn't until I was in my first class and I sat down and I, and I looked at my student population and my student population was not me. It was 80% female. It was 70% African-American. It was average age in the mid thirties and had children. All things that I hadn't had at that point. <laughs> so, or I wasn't. So, um, so when I, I, I had this, you know, this, this experience, right. And, and, and what it did was it really thrust me into looking back on my life and looking at the experiences that I had in my life and how those things maybe shaped how I perceived education, how I perceived diversity, you know, how, I, how everything was, was developed. So I had some experiences in my life that, that now that I look back on should have been really impactful and they were. So when I, I moved, I was, I, when I was in a uh, 10th grade, I lived in a big town in Texas and, and my high school had 4,000 students. And in 11th grade, we moved to uh, rural Georgia and my graduating class had 149 kids. So it, I went from a, a graduating class of 1,100 to a graduating class of 149. And the first year I was there during homecoming, they had to elect two homecoming queens, one white and one black. Now, this is in the 80s. This isn't, you know, too terribly long ago. And, it, and I asked why, and they, and they said, because the racial tension would be too high if they elected one prom queen. Right. So, and that so, you, need, so you need that token. Right. Or, or you need the, you need the, uh, yeah, the giveaway. Um, mm -hmm. let, let's, let's, uh, uh, let's uh, make every, let's try to make everybody happy by doing the wrong thing. So I had that experience. I had, um, when I was in college, I was on, uh, I was on an academic scholarship and an athletic scholarship. And, and I was a, athletic trainer for wins fast pitch softball and the assistant coach was a student uh as well 
and he and I became really good friends. And so year two, we, we asked if we could room together. And uh, it took, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks to get a response. And finally, when we got a response, I, I asked the dean of students, why did it take so long? And uh, he said, uh, because you'll be the first integrated roommates that we've ever had on campus. Wow. That, I mean, that's just amazing. How, I mean, how does that experience shape your thinking about on diversity and equity in education? I have had the experience of being in a lot of different educational environments. And what I recognize or what I realize is that no one thing fits all. And we keep trying to create these programs or systems that are one size fits all. Uh, and, and so, and then we try to package it and, and then we say, um, we say flowerly things like, um, we're going to teach to every student and we're going to meet every student where they're at, but we really aren't doing that. All we're doing is, is utilizing some package that gets to some standard in, uh, uh, to, to check off some box a lot of the time. And I'm not, and I'm not criticizing teachers at all. I, teachers are the most powerful, wonderful, amazing people that I know. The most giving, the most, you know, I put them on par with nurses and people that, that uh, have to take care of us, you know? I think teachers have to take care of us. And, and so I, I've, seen, I've seen every different kind of style. And, and, uh, and what I know is, is that without an honest conversation about race, without an honest conversation about gender, without an honest conversation about uh, privilege, then, you know, we're, we're kind of doomed to repeat things that we've done in the past. You know, this comes back to the boxes that you were talking about, like in building those boxes. They're not standard shapes. They're not standard sizes. Uh, they're, they're individualized, really. And your individual experiences are really and how they've shaped you and how you were able to enter into different spaces um, successfully is, is really remarkable. A lot of people would not be able to enter certain spaces where 80% of the students are a, a different gender, a different race. Um, all of those pieces were like, wait a minute, can I really communicate with this group? Can I really relate? Uh, what about my teaching? Are they going to understand what I'm saying? And can I give the right examples? Tell us how you were accepted into that black culture of the institution. You know, I, I feel very lucky that, that uh, the students uh, there uh, accepted me right away. Um, they, and I, and, and I, and I have thought back, I've reflected back on why, you know, I've, I've talked to students about why and, and, uh, part of it was that I was very honest. Uh, we would have honest conversations in class. Now I was teaching math methods and we, we learned how to teach math to students, but in the course of that, I can't teach without contextualizing. I can't teach without giving my experience. And I can't have you learn without you giving me your experience, right? So, so I would do an activity with them and it was a, an activity where they were, say, discovering the ratio pi, okay? And, uh, and I would first give it to them and I would give it to them in a very traditional way. I would give them all the language and I would give them all the, re the pieces and then I would tell them to, to do the work and then I would test them and they would fail. And then I would redo the lesson, except I would, I would give a contextualization. I would ask what their prior knowledge was and I would bring that into it, their experience into it. And then we would do the same activity. They thought it was a different activity. We do the exactly the same activity and then we would do the, the test and they would all pass. And then we would discuss what was the difference between the first one and the second one, right? What was the difference between how I taught first and how I taught second? And a lot of what it was, was my connection to them, my personal connection with them, them buying into me as a person, right? Like just as hard as it is for me as a white male to teach a black female, 
it may be that difficult for a black female to be taught by this white male that she has no connection with, she has no understanding of. So it's not, you know, like I have to take that into consideration too. So um, I think that because I was honest, I was open, I contextualized, I, um, we did talk about um, difficult topics that might come up. We talked about things that happen in schools. You know, I would share what I was dealing with. So I, uh, I did some consulting for some schools, some elementary schools in the early 2000s in outside of Chicago. And, and uh, uh, I remember I was at the school and it was a kindergarten, kindergartner there. I'd, I'd been at the school often. So everybody knew me and all the students knew me. And, and uh, um, this one young, young girl came up to me uh, and uh, I said, oh, hey, um, are you excited? Today is Halloween. Um, you know, when you go home, are you excited to go trick or treating? And uh, she said, oh, no, 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 you don't go out on Halloween, you'll get raped. Oh. Six years old. That was her reality. Now, that is not my reality. Right. That, that leveled me. When she said that, that leveled me because I would have never, I wouldn't have asked the question. Right. Like, I'm, I, I, I thought I was doing this, like, I, in my mind, oh, I'm asking this exciting thing. Right. That's my reality. That's my point of view. That's as much as I've thought about the other person is what my experience of Halloween was. Right. Not understanding that her experience of Halloween might be something totally different. I didn't even consider that. Yeah, and so often I wanna put race aside, but race shapes our experiences and how we're treated, right? I think we had a conversation earlier about, I said, I'm just not going to put my race on applications anymore. And let's start a movement of people not completing their race on any application. Because in this day and age, I mean, is race really real, you know? And uh, I think, Tim, you said something about that uh, we're just inherently, our inherent nature is the systematic racism. So the powers that be, if it's not color, it's going to be something else. So if it's not the color of your skin, they're gonna pick something else where we can discriminate against each other. Yeah, uh, racial identity, so, so there's two things that I think about um, racial identity. First off, the, 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 the race that is in power does not necessarily have very much racial identity. The race that it has less numbers has a, very, uh, has a higher level of racial identity. Um, you can see that right now. Although you do see some very fringe white groups coming out that are, you know, KKK, uh, you know, white supremacists uh, that, are, that are, you know, throwing up their, this is my racial identity, whatever. But, but the, the, the racial identity, white racial identity, I think is rooted in, uh, in four things. Group size, uh, group power, group discrimination, and group appearance. So group size is, you know, there are more white people than there are black people. Group power, uh, white people has, have historically had power over black people. We had slavery. Uh, group discrimination, I really, I would call group discrimination institution or system, uh, systemic racism. So I see group discrimination through systemic racism, institutional racism, policies that are set up to inherently keep down uh, a, a particular race. And uh, then group appearance, you know, mm -hmm. people look alike and then somebody looks different, right? So that is where um, I think the, the kind of racial identity, um, uh, white racial identity is rooted in. And, uh, and, and until we have um, really considered uh, power, discrimination, appearance, then are we ever really addressing um, the cultural uprising that's happening right now. Let's talk about a subgroup. I want to talk in particular about education because sometimes even in an institution that is very diverse, when we look at teacher education, for example, that 
we see less diversity. And can you talk about your experience and why we see less diversity in programs like teacher education? And I think it's just such a real problem because right now we only have 7% of our teachers are of African descent. And not only do African-American children need to see people who look like them, because I know that I did, you know, growing up, I could be a teacher because it wasn't until after graduate school that I saw an African-American teacher, and that's sad. You can't be what you can't see. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a need for more diversity in teaching, but yeah. why are we seeing that in that major? You know, I... I um... I wish I knew the, the, the silver bullet to this, but I think it is a, probably a combination of many things. It probably has to do some with uh, cultural acceptance or cultural relevance of school. So one of the things that I, I have seen um, in my work is that uh, uh, many times, and this does not have to be a, a racial thing, but many times how school is valued is or uh, if school is valued because sometimes school isn't valued for a good reason maybe there's bad schooling happening you know um so uh so when you have uh situations where over time uh, systems have been in place that have inherently kept people down do you see then the power or the value in going into that profession if it's not seen as uh, you know something on a pedestal, you know teaching itself has always uh, suffered from in this country has always suffered from this idea that it's not a profession, a professional profession. It's it's uh, uh, um, you know teachers should be seen on the same level as doctors and lawyers and nurses yes, and I agree mm -hmm. you know professionals. And, um, and, 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 not and we're not necessarily done that. So, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily, I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of, uh, uh, ish, there's lots of reasons why that probably is. And, and we, and that's something that we have to start to try to understand. Because as you said, it, if, if you don't have any teachers that look like you, then, you know, how do you ever, truly trust like how do you ever truly um uh connect with right um right you have to have some of that in your experience everybody does and when you talk about that connecting and trusting you know your the paper also talked about why african americans choose to go to hbc right yeah. and it's because of a lot of those things that you just mentioned and so how do you, and how did you, how do you provide that for those students knowing, okay, they came to this school because they wanna see people that look like them, that wanna see people that they can relate to, they want to be able to trust, you know, all of those things that you just mentioned. Yeah. How do, how do you see yourself plopped into that? <laughs> yeah, you guys have asked me that question like three different times. And I, and I, I conveniently trying to uh, navigate around it. But yeah, we want to hear the real truth. The real truth is, is, that, um, is that my honesty and my um, willingness and openness did something that I could never have done on my own. I could have never planned to try to do what I was able to do. I'm going to say what, what a student said to me. These are not my words. But um, I had a student tell me, Dr. Harrington, you're a black man. What he meant by that, I think, was is that he accepted me into his culture, that he and I were on, on par with each other, that we could talk to each other and understand each other. And him saying that to me was such a uh, uh, such a thing. I mean, he did it in front of the class and I looked around the class and there were several students shaking their head. And I, and, and, and I said, uh, I said, yeah, that's very kind. And, and, uh, and he said, no, you, you really get us. It's, I don't know that I do. I just know that I'm open and honest and willing to listen and try to understand that I come from a different place than somebody else. And that I've been given a leg up in a lot of things 
just because I'm a man or just because I'm white. And it's not the things that I've asked for, but I've been given. An African-American who's a professional has had only one door open to them and they made it through that door. I don't even see the doors mm -hmm. because of my privilege. Mm -hmm. So there are no doors for me, right? Like, I mean, I've had all the doors opened for me, right? So right. I have to be aware of that though. And, and I have to own that. You know, I can't just deny it. I can't just pretend that it isn't there or downplay it because I'm in the, uh, I'm in the majority, mm -hmm. right? I, I can't do that. And I, so, think that's what, I think that's what gave me the, um, gave me the connection, gave me the, the, the entree into my students' lives. Did you feel honored? when they gave I, that I, designation? I, I uh, absolutely, I, just telling the story here, I almost uh, broke down in tears because my students were amazing, are amazing people. I still am in contact with many of my students, um, many of my former student teachers that have gone on to become principals and gotten their doctorates and done amazing things. And, uh, uh, you know, and to see them and talk with them and, you know, I think I had one other experience that I'd want to talk about, and I didn't talk about it in this paper, but this was a very big, important thing for me and my students. I used to, I, I set up a project where for one week, I was going to take students, teachers, student teachers from the south side of Chicago and put them in a, a rural one, uh, a one room schoolhouse or in a, on a, a tribal school on a reservation, take them out of the South side of Chicago and take them somewhere else completely different and, and, and uh, uh, experience that. And uh, so what we did um, is that we, I had them and the professors, myself included, write down what we expected to see when we got to where we were going. You know, the one room schoolhouse, and the people that were gonna be working there and what were they expected to see there and then on the reservation. And this was a mix of African-American students and, and Hispanic students and uh, white students, male and female. And it was interesting that with the Native American population, all of my students, regardless of their background, wrote about the same kind of biases in there what they expected to see. They expected to see teepees. They expected to see rampant drunkenness. They expected to see casinos, right, on the reservation. And when they got to the school, they thought the school was gonna be the small traditional thing. Well, the school that I took them to was probably the most technologically advanced school, elementary school in the country. But all of us had this shared experience where, you know how we were describing Native Americans? through popular culture, through what we saw in the media, right? We weren't, it wasn't our experience with it. It was our bias. It was our, you know, it was, it was what we had grown up seeing in movies and on TV. Right. So that shared experience with my students, I mean, it really opened up their eyes to bias. It opened up my eyes to bias. And it opened our eyes to bias that we were biased, you know, we had biases against each other. So that, that, was, a, that was a big thing. You know, you've talked about uh, your experiences being in different institutions, how, what shaped those, uh, that lens you look through, and the possible problems there have been with K-12 education, like why, why teachers aren't, or why potential teachers aren't there, that why do they want not go into teaching? What about higher ed? Uh, typically, historically, Black institutions uh, have majority minority faculty. But what contributes, you think, what contributes to the challenge of retaining faculty of color at universities that have large percentage of students of color? You know, I think that, uh, again, it, it goes back to um, looking at your, the policies and the procedures of the institution and are there uh, policies or procedures that are rooted in 
institutional there that are institutionally racist in some way. I'll give you an example outside of higher ed that I heard and it may really impacted me. Um, uh, where a student, uh, 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 an African American male student, was graduating uh, from college and he was wanted to go to get his MBA. And at the MBA where he was going to go, the application, you had to have a recommendation from the dean of the school that you graduated from with your undergraduate degree. And what had happened was, is that that it was it, what this African-American male told me was that in the African-American culture to go to somebody that you don't know and ask them to write you a letter of recommendation um, is really outside of the norm. And for, uh, for a white student, it was just, you just sent it to the, to the dean and they was, it was a pro forma thing. It was that you didn't have to have a relationship with them. It was just a form that they were filling out essentially. Where the African-American student said, I couldn't bring myself to go, because I didn't know the man. So I, I couldn't bring myself to go and ask for him to do something for me. So that is a, so this student then did not get into the, the MBA that, that he wanted. And, you know, and, and so that is an example where there is, was a policy or there was a procedure or there was something that was going on that did not match culturally with what that student uh, expected or, or, or could handle. And, and Amy, I can speak to that um, as an African-American in higher ed and the difficult decision it was to go into higher ed because, you know, I was first generation to go to college uh, and my sister and I, we actually graduated at the same time, but she's five years older than I am. So it took her a lot longer. But after uh, getting a doctorate and I'm a P-12 administrator, there's a disparity in pay, you know? So I have the credentials to be in higher ed, but I have opportunities to make so much more money if I'm not in higher ed. So that was a huge decision for me. And, and when you are the person in your family and you're, you know, you're making these leaps and bounds through whatever struggles, you know, that's a difficult decision. Do I now want to go in higher ed? on a different track, make less money. Uh, but also, I found that once I was in higher ed, it was hard for us to retain African-American uh, faculty. And I thought that was because of mentorship. And I think you really have to do a better job with mentorship for everybody, but especially when you see a minority group for whatever reason they might be minority, uh, that we really need to reach out to them and make sure that they feel included. Uh, so I think that there's a number of reasons of why number one is hard to attract. And then secondly, it's hard to retain them. So I think we can definitely do something about the retention part through the mentorship. You know, and Dr. Harrington continues to talk about those connections and for you to get your students to be ready to learn and open to learn, there had to be some connection there. Mm -hmm. They couldn't, they weren't going to just work, do the work because I asked them to do it. Right. And they, and they weren't going to just do the work because it was what was supposed to be done. Right. Sometimes they have to like you, right? Well, they gotta, they gotta, they gotta, they gotta, they gotta know that you're a person, right? They gotta, mm -hmm. they gotta understand that, that you're coming from somewhere and you have to understand that they're coming from somewhere. That's the thing that I missed. That's the thing that I had to, that I had to grow in is knowing where they came from, right? Opening my mind, opening my heart to listening to where they came from and their struggles and the things that they believe, and 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 then trying to connect uh, it, it with things that are similar and and then discuss the things that were different, and not be afraid to do that. I was never I, I've never been afraid to to have that discussion with a student. If they want to have the discussion, I don't. Not that I have all the answers. I don't. Um, I have very few of the answers. I just am lucky enough to have a lot of people around me, uh, especially now, that are wiser than I am, and uh, they give me good advice. Right. And the more experience you have, the richer you are, you know, as a person. So it's it's been wonderful, uh, Amy. You might have some follow up questions, but I just think it's wonderful. I really enjoyed the article. 
I can't wait to talk to you again about white privilege because I do think that that is a real thing <laughs> of, of, of white privilege and, and what that means to have white privilege. Um, interesting. And, <laughs> male, and male privilege. And male privilege. I mean, like I got all the boxes checked. Right. I can certainly relate and talk about my experience in trying to supervise middle-aged white men with PhD. Yes. So you tread lightly. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, so you get me, right? I do. Yeah. Well, yes. And I always like to ask a question about your research. So I know that you and I have been uh, reading Glasser and quality schools and uh, talking about the choice theory, but who are some uh, researchers or professionals in the field that that you lean on to inform your thinking to that we can share with our listeners today? Yeah, I mean, there, there, um, there obviously there, there are people uh, that, that inform my philosophy um, that go back as far as like von Glosserfeld and, and radical constructivist uh, thought. And, uh, um, but maybe somebody uh, more current that, uh, that uh, your, um, your listeners could look into is someone like Constance Camille, K-A-M-I-I, Constance Camille. She's probably the foremost neo-Piagetian. Uh, she was trained by Piaget. She has some really interesting thoughts on, uh, on, on education and on pedagogy and on child development. So uh, that would be uh, somebody that I would, I would say go and, and, and uh, explore. But, uh, you know, you, you have to, uh, I would say that uh, you have to understand uh, your philosophy and how it, how it interacts or connects with, you know, a, a pedagogy that somebody else has developed because you're not, you're not them. <laughs> so uh, you have to, and then you have to take into account uh, uh, context. So, you know, the, the, those are uh, real important pieces that you have to connect with. So um, as somebody who uh, trains people in pedagogy, you know, it, it's hard to say, you know, I'm a radical constructivist or a social constructivist, um, unless you really know what that is and you're really doing it, then you might have some of those aspects uh, in your teacher training or in your teacher toolkit, but, uh, but you can certainly understand and do more. So Constance Camille would be somebody who I would suggest that they look up. Thank you. I appreciate these resources as I know Joy does and our listeners will too. So thank you for being with us today. It's been thank a you. pleasure. I know we didn't, scratch the surface of some of the uh, framework of your article, but I do look forward to talking more in the near future. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys asking me to come on and, and uh, you know, is as challenging as it is without having honest conversations about race and privilege mm -hmm. and power, nothing will ever change. Absolutely. Absolutely. I thank you guys for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Dr. Harrington was a treasure to have on the show today. His words about knowing students, connecting with them, and how he was able to do that really is my biggest takeaway. Um, the honesty and openness, regardless of position, regardless of teaching or what you're teaching, who you're teaching, that honesty and openness is so valuable. I, I, I think it's his, that experience means everything, right? We can read um, in books, we can look at the news, we, can, we have all these outlet sources, but having, you just can't replace that experience and how that experience has shaped his life and how he views people and uh, it's just fascinating. So I think really the more we get to know each other, the more we find similarities more than differences, right? Uh, and that we have a whole new appreciation for each other. So his experience, you know, it's, it's just very interesting. I think what's more interesting is what he got out of the experience. It, well, exactly. And I even tried to ask 
particular question about classroom instruction. And it wasn't about instruction. It was about who. It was about who he's teaching and who he is as an individual and what his identity is as a teacher, as a professor. And that was, that was a really big uh, takeaway for me is it's not about necessarily the classroom practices. Sure, great instruction, it should look a certain way. Um, it takes on many forms, but it's about those individual connections. And I, I really value uh, what he is bringing to the table and the perspectives he is able to share and the experience that he's learned from so that we can also learn from those experiences. You know, there's this phrase that I think of, and I'm probably going to botch it up. You probably know what it is about. You won't remember the teachers who taught you what you learned, but you'll remember the teachers, how they made you feel. And, and I think that that's so appropriate here because I talk all the time about readiness to learn and you have to make students feel comfortable and you have to be back with them before they feel open enough to learn right so those are very it's very important you know we're going to talk about that too later with a later show about technology you know and we talk about should you have your cameras on should you have your cameras off things like that and i just think having that personal touch and getting to know each other on a personal level really expands that relationship when it comes to teaching yeah, so, and I'm oh, looking forward to talking to you next time, Amy. It's always a pleasure. Indeed, it is a pleasure to be with you. Every time we have these podcasts, it's like I learned something new and you really push my thinking. So I love it. Great. Talk to you later. All right. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory, probably, this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy. <laughs>